Last week, we completed the fifth chapter of Ezra. We used the interaction between Tatanay, the governor of the region, which included Judea, a region called Beyond the River, or Ebernari in Persian, and the Jewish leaders regarding the temple building project. Seemingly from the text, Tatanay seemed to be a fair and judicious man who was interested in finding out the truth. As Christians, every now and then, we have the opportunity to interact with a person that is genuinely seeking the truth. Chapter 5 of Ezra gives us the following guidelines in presenting the truth to a fair-minded listener. Number one, live in such a way that people notice that there is something different about you, that the Lord's work is being accomplished. Number two, proclaim that the God you serve is Lord of all. No one is excluded from his salvation. Number three, we are all sinners in need of a savior. Number four, God sent a savior. His name is Jesus Christ, the only mediator between man and God. And number five, the Christian life is a life of discipleship. Finally, in all of this, be completely honest in your presentation of the gospel. A fair-minded hearer will check out whether or not what you tell them is true. Christians never sell the gospel. They give it to any that will hear. But today's message is completely different. We are going to look at all 22 verses of chapter 6, but we're really going to focus on verses 20 and 21. Much of the rest of the chapter is repeating some of the history we have already covered in this series, so we will blast through the first part of the outline today um, so that we can set the stage for the final part of the chapter. It was interesting. I was so much looking forward to um, next week's message that I actually spent the first half of the week preparing for the wrong message. I was just really looking forward to it. And and so all of a sudden uh, on Thursday, was it Thursday? Thursday morning I texted Esther. I said, I get to start again. I've spent this week so far preparing and outlining the wrong message. And so I got to start again. And uh, so that's what I've been doing the last couple days. I had to tie up chapter 6 before I um, get into uh, the next message, which is not, by the way, chapter 7, but uh, we'll cover, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, I, I won't be here, or at least not um, bringing the message the next couple of weeks, so you'll have to wait for that. But um, anyway, that's just kind of how it turned out. But that's what happens when you have a scatterbrained person behind the pulpit, and that's nobody's fault but my own. I've titled today's message, The Second Temple is Completed. So let's read together all of chapter 6. We'll pray, and then we'll get into today's message. Ezra chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in 
Ekbatana, some of your translations will say um, Ekbatha, I, I believe. Uh, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits. With three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also, let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanay, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanay, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanay, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanay and their associates, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, 
the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just ask for your spirit to guide our minds and our hearts this morning in your word. Uh, we want to pray especially also this morning for um, Pastor John MacArthur in California and the people that uh, you have placed under his charge and ask that you would uplift him and strengthen him and give him courage and joy. And I pray that you would, uh, by the might of your spirit, uh, work in that part of the world to bring about um, revival that that state of California needs so desperately. I pray that you would hinder all the plans of the enemies of your church, especially in that area this morning. As we look into your word, we are grateful this morning that uh, you have continued to provide um, open and free access to worship and to your word here this morning and pray that you will just bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So Darius responds to the governor. Tatnai goes to King Darius, and Darius looks into what's going on. He responds. The search for truth continues. We left off last week with the Jews explaining to the governor why they were building in Jerusalem. Chapter 6 begins with an account of that search for the truth behind what the Jews claimed King Cyrus had done for them. The continued success of the Jews depended on the truthfulness of their claim. They had told Tatnay that King Cyrus had released them to build, and the governor was going to find out if this was the case. I sometimes wonder how fervently Zerubbabel and the Jewish leaders prayed once Tatnay left them to search out the truth. They had been told by the prophets of God that God was with them, but I have no doubt that they prayed with some heat that God would continue to work out his will. If their claims were not confirmed by the governor, the future would have been an uncertain at best, or even disastrous at worst. Isn't it interesting how the confirmation for the Jewish claim depended upon the diligence of the Persian authorities to seek out the truth? If no evidence would have been found, the guilt of the Jews would automatically have been assumed, not their innocence. If you speak the truth of the gospel to someone and they refuse to accept the responsibility of seeking out the truth, they will assume that you are lying. This is part of the reason it is so important that we pray that the Lord would move in the hearts of people that they would seek the truth. The passage goes on to say that in their search for the truth, they found a scroll. And it says very unusually that they found it at Ekbatana or Ekmetha, 
It's the it's just different names of the same city from different languages. This indicates that there must have been some diligence required in the search. This is, to me at least, an evidence of God's hand in the matter. Otherwise, they might have easily given up the search. I think a map is going to come up on the next slide. Um, if you look, you'll see um, Babylon there between those two rivers toward the south end. And you'll see almost due east of there is Susa, the Persian capital. And um, north of both of those, you'll see the city Ecbatana. So Jerusalem is over here. That's where they were building. He said that the scroll was originated in Babylon, over here. The capital of Persia was over here, and somehow they found a scroll up here. Now, why up there in that city? Why Ecbatana? Well, interestingly, that's where the Persian kings would go to uh, get relief from the summer heat. It was a, a more hilly country. It was a higher elevation. And so they would, in the summers, they would go to Ecbatana because it was a much nicer climate. And that is where they found Cyrus's scroll. So it took some effort. And I truly believe that that's God's hand guiding the search. The Jews had told the truth and then God stepped in and was sure that what needed to take place took place. Through archaeological research, we know now that it was the custom of Persian kings to spend the winter at Babylon and depart in the summer to either Susa or Ecbatana. We also know that Cyrus um, left Babylon in the spring of 538 BC, very shortly after his decree to release the exiles. So there has been um, criticism of this passage that there's no way that that scroll would have been found up there in Ecbatana, so Ezra must have been mistaken. And then archaeologists find out that that's exactly what would have made sense if Cyrus would have traveled in the summer heat up to his retreat there. And so um, I think it's a, it's a nice confirmation, and it shows us that God's hand was guiding these seekers. Cyrus's decree in our passage, and I need to hurry here to get to what we want to talk about today, is summarized by Darius. This is the decree that we read here this morning that was originally recorded in Ezra 1, although it gives some other details. It gave the Jewish people who wanted to return to Jerusalem and Judea the right to return and to repopulate Judea and to rebuild Jerusalem. And not only did Cyrus give permission for the temple to be rebuilt, he commanded the funding of the work from the royal treasury. There is some question about the size of the temple mentioned here, for those of you that have been studying, because these dimensions given in the passage we just read are greater even than Solomon's temple. It's much greater than the temple that they built. And I think the best answer is that Cyrus said, look, this is the limit of what you can build. It can be this big, but no bigger. And that seems to make sense. Furthermore, Cyrus ordered that the spoils taken from the temple some two generations before 
be returned to the Jerusalem temple. This is stuff that we've covered in some early parts of this series. Then Darius, once he had read Cyrus's decree, he gave instructions based on it. Darius commanded Tatnai to allow the work on the temple and the city of Jerusalem to continue without interruption. And based on the prior decree from Cyrus, King Darius commanded that the building be funded by local taxes on the region behind, uh, beyond the river. In this, again, we see the wonderful hand of God at work with the inspections conducted by Tatnai as recorded in Ezra chapter 5, verse 3. The end result of the Jews' faithfulness and God's hand was to further the work of God rather than limiting it. The people of God should never be afraid of the truth. Finally, Darius was careful to make the decree strong. He promised severe punishment against those who violated the decree. I looked up what this punishment involved, and I encourage you not to do that. The king was not just blowing smoke either, and Tatnay knew it. Darius was the type of man to see such brutal executions through to completion. When the city of Babylon was defeated by the Persians, this Darius impaled in the way described in verse 11, 3,000 Babylonian nobles, exactly the way he described. He was not one to make a threat and not carry through. This is a powerful illustration of the principle from Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. We would do well to remember this verse when we pray for our own political leadership. I've been praying for some time regarding our government that whatever lies and corruption what were taking place at, at levels of leadership would be exposed. That seems to be happening on a fairly regular basis. The problem is that our society seems to have degraded so much that people somehow think that's still okay. So we need that our king's heart be turned. And I pray for that as well. The temple is finished and dedicated. This is the remainder of the chapter uh, 6 of Ezra here. This is the heart of today's message. Most of what we've talked about up till now has been some review, just as a reminder to yourself. But what is coming for the rest of the message is going to be new. The temple, first of all, is completed. The words and ministry of Haggai and Zechariah are again recalled. These prophets were indispensable in the success of the work in the same way that the word of God is indispensable to the work of the Lord today. The work and the workers were genuinely strengthened by the word of God through these prophets. Christian, if you attempt to do the work of the Lord without the sustaining and encouraging ministry of the word of the Lord, you will find yourself growing weary and discouraged as well. The initial ministry of these prophets is mentioned at the beginning of Ezra chapter 5. There, the prophets had to encourage the people to resume the work 
after a significant period of activity. Now they had to encourage them to keep working when God had opened the doors for the work to be done. Even with the open doors, the work was still difficult and needed prophetic encouragement. God's blessing on the work did not make the work easy to do. And I'm so thankful for that. Work that is easy to do is unrewarding. But it gave them the strength to do the difficult task placed before them. God has designed us in such a way that it is the completion of a difficult task that we get a deep sense of accomplishment. That's how God put us together. Small or easy tasks give us a small sense of accomplishment. And we all need to begin there to develop the obedience that comes with doing the little things. As the task grows in size and difficulty that the Lord gives us, we are encouraged in our spirits to continue upward and onward. Logically, where does this lead? I think it leads to the impossible task. The task that God has for you that cannot be done in your own strength. We are fearful to take on this task because it pulls us out of our comfort zone. We are quite satisfied right where we are, thank you very much. But I want you to remember that deep sense of satisfaction that God provided to you as you were obedient in the small things. And begin in your mind to multiply that as encouragement to move forward daringly in the Lord in accordance with his spirit and the word of God. A small illustration that I'd like to give you. I remember very clearly as a very young man, my mom asked me to do some menial task, some little thing. Could you, I don't remember what it was, clean out the dishwasher, something that she asked. And I didn't feel like cleaning out the dishwasher, but I thought, do you know what? I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to go do it. And I cleaned out the dishwasher and I had this sense of, I don't know what to call it, uh, cleanness. I was uplifted. I was encouraged that I had been obedient. And it just gave me a boost in my spirit. Somehow it gave me energy to do that little thing. And as we do the, and as the Lord asks our obedience for the little things and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, that sense of cleanness and being obedient to the Lord energizes us and gives us the ability to face those more difficult things later on as well. And I think that's what's happening here when the prophets encouraged the people. They said, look, here's a task. It's impossible. You go do it. And in the Lord, they did. It took four years to complete the temple once they started again. Ten years they sat looking at a partially finished temple and said, too much work. Can't, can't be done. It's impossible. Then the word of the Lord came to them and encouraged them, and in four years it was done. A great work for the Lord 
is not completed on the zeal the work started with. It takes endurance and self-discipline. The temple then is dedicated. This should remind us of a previous celebration many years before at the founding, pardon me, at the founding of this second temple in Ezra chapter 3. Back then, many of the people wept along with those that shouted for joy. It seems now the weeping had ceased. Either the elderly folk that remembered the first temple had either passed away by this time or had heeded the prophet Haggai's words not to despise humble beginnings. They offered sacrifices. Compared to the dedication of Solomon's temple, this was a small dedication ceremony. Just to give you an idea, Solomon, when he built the first temple, sacrificed about 140,000 animals at his dedication of that temple. That's many. That's more fingers and toes than I have. Here at the dedication of the second temple, they sacrificed a total of 712. But there was still atonement and still the covenant with the whole people. I thought, when I read those two numbers, I thought of the widow's might. Just, just in case you guys were wondering, I didn't think it was a failure. I thought it was they gave what they had. There was still atonement in the covenant with the whole people. Notice, and it really jumped out at me, that they sacrificed 12 male goats as a sin offering for 12 tribes. They had not forgotten the lost northern tribes of Israel in their dedication to the Lord. It was a remarkable forgiving, forward-looking, and hopeful act on the part of these Jews. They had read the prophecies. Remember, there was a huge rift created between the ten northern tribes called Israel and the two southern tribes called Judah. And it had been festering for years and years and years. And here at the dedication of the temple, they did not only offer two or three goats, they offered 12. There was a reconciliation and a forgiveness that could only come from the wellspring of God's spirit. Then Passover is celebrated. In keeping the Passover, they remembered the central act of redemption of the Old Testament, the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. But if you read carefully, as I trust you did this week, you will notice that the Passover lamb was slaughtered by the priests for the people. The two verses that really jumped out at me, and I mentioned them at the beginning of this message, were verses 20 and 21. I'd like to spend the rest of our time together reflecting on these two short passages. Maybe I'm making too much of this, but verse 20 troubled me as I reflected on it. I went back and read how the Lord first instituted the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And I would like to read that passage to you now. Let's read together and it should come up. 
Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole congregation, sorry, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Unlike Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, sacrifice, where a goat is slaughtered for all the children of Israel, for all their sins, once a year. We learn Leviticus chapter 16, verse 34. The sacrifice of the Passover is an intensely personal sacrifice. It is done at the homes of the people in the passage we just read. Each person partakes of the lamb. This is not to say that the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was not immensely important. It was. Orthodox Jews celebrate it to the best of their ability, even to this day. But it is presenting a different facet of atonement than the Passover sacrifice. Here's what I mean. It is easy to say, Jesus died for the sins of the world. That is a statement of fact. It's a statement of theology. And it's a statement of biblical truth. But to say Jesus died for my sin is another thing altogether. Not only is it a statement of fact, theology, and biblical truth, it is a statement of personal accountability to a holy and loving God. We see all of this encapsulated in John the Baptist's statement in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God, Passover, who takes away the sin of the world. So perhaps the intimacy of the Passover sacrifice was missed by the returned exiles in Ezra chapter 6. They didn't have to slit the lamb's throat and collect the blood. They didn't have to paint that blood around the door of their house. 
I know that the celebration of the Passover changed and developed over the centuries. God gives certain instructions and even exceptions throughout the nation's history. But I can't help but think how important it is to at least reflect on what the Jews in Egypt must have experienced on that first Passover evening. I've said all this to say this. You cannot ride anyone's coattails into salvation. You are not a Christian because you were born and raised in Western culture. You are not a Christian because the town you live in has 17 churches. You are not a Christian because your family has for generations gone to church. You are not a Christian because your grandma and grandpa or mom or dad is a Christian. You are not a Christian because you had some moving experience. You are a Christian if you recognize that you personally are hopelessly lost without Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection because of your sin. You have trusted him completely for deliverance from your sin and ultimately eternal separation from God in hell. This is what it means to believe or to have faith in Christ. You know that he died for you and your sin, the sin for which you are entirely responsible. And you wholly place your life into the pierced hands of the Son of God. In Passover terms, Christ's blood has been poured out for you and it is on your hands. Christ's blood has been poured out for you and it is on your hands. You held the knife of sin that slew him. Now you choose to apply it to the doorposts of your heart or not. Like Pilate, you too can take water and wash your hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. It is a life or death decision. Every individual person must make for himself or herself. On to verse 21. Connected with the remembrance of deliverance of Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This marked the purity of God's delivered people. This is where we first learned that leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible, and the Jews were to have none of it anywhere near them. British theologian Frank Kidner writes this, This is a crucial verse, verse 21, for correcting the impression one might gain from Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, 1 to 3, of a bitterly exclusive party. In reality, we find that on, only the self-excluded were unwelcome. The convert found an open door, as Rahab and Ruth had done, unquote. God's heart has always yearned for the people of the whole world. We see this most clearly in the gospel message of the New Testament, but it sparkles through in the Old Testament as well. The Bible does not begin with God's selection of Abraham in Genesis 12. It begins with the creation of the entire universe 
in chapter 1. It is all his. It all concerns him. Furthermore, we are all descendants of Adam, and the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, even you, even me. The final verse of our passage says, the Lord had made them joyful. This is the joy found in obedience. This is the joy found in clean living. This is the joy found in trusting our Passover lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so often we wander through our lives seeking joy as if somehow we can attain it for ourselves. And over and over again, we come up empty-handed. It's like trying to scoop water. It just flows through our fingers. Father, give us a heart to seek you. To seek your kingdom. So that the joy that you have for us, you can give as a gift. Father, we are so grateful when we look at these beautiful pictures in these Old Testament stories, particularly the Passover this morning, and how personal it was, how your heart yearned to teach the people about Jesus, that he was going to come one day and be our Passover lamb. I pray that each of us would recognize that we were responsible because of our sin for that blood being poured out. That we would not turn our backs, wash our hands and turn our backs on Jesus Christ. But that we would recognize our responsibility and that we would place our lives in his pierced hands. Each person. Thank you for this wonderful book of Ezra that you have given to us as a, a gift without price. Thank you that we have had the opportunity to look at some of the most beautiful passages here in the Old Testament, here particularly in verses 20 and 21. I pray that by your Spirit you would guide us into all truth. I pray that by your Spirit you would walk with us for the remainder of this week. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for your Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.